You are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 35, Jurisdiction. It is a changing. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. My conversation with Tom Hall of the Bishop and Mills Law Firm in Tallahassee is coming up next. So, Tom Hall, welcome back to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thanks. It's good to be back. I wanted to have you on the show because of your, uh, you know, encyclopedic knowledge, I would call it, about the Florida courts. Uh, you're a former longtime clerk of the Florida Supreme Court. Your immediate past chair of the Appellate Court Rules Committee and, and a host of other things. You have your fingers in just about everything, I think. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, too many things to mention, but I'll put a link in to your bio in the show notes. But anytime I want to know what's going on with the Florida courts, uh, I call you. So, so thanks for coming on the show. Well, I'm glad to do it. So I want to talk about a change that is coming in the jurisdiction of Florida appellate courts. And, you know, that's kind of a big deal because this doesn't happen very often. I, I, in my 26 years of practice, I don't remember this ever happening. I, I don't know if I'm misremembering that, but uh, has this ever happened uh, before in, in your uh, career? Um, not in my career. You know, the change, uh, the big change in jurisdiction occurred uh, the same year I became an attorney, but it, it occurred right before I became an attorney. So by the time I started, I didn't know the old way. I only knew the new way. So <laughs> no, no change actually happened while I was, um, an attorney. These changes are effective January 1, 2021. So it's coming very quickly. Um, you know, I guess we should say just most of the people who listen to this show don't don't, don't need any background information, but we should say that generally speaking, uh, decisions of county courts, are, which are our lowest level trial courts in Florida, are subject to review by circuit courts. Uh, it's another trial level court, but they sit in their appellate capacity for some some purposes. And this past June, the Florida legislature passed a law that or, you know changed the statute that significantly changed the jurisdiction of the circuit courts as they sit in their appellate capacity, um, as related to county court orders and judgments. So can you, can you kind of describe what was, what's the nature of the change that was made to appellate jurisdiction? Well, let me preface it by saying, you know, generally the, the provision is that jurisdiction belongs in the circuit court, except as specifically given to the county court or the district court of appeal. Right. So generally they catch everything. And so, so that meant that, if you were going to appeal, since there was no provision that the District Court of Appeal had uh, review of those, that meant it went from county to circuit because circuit court has that just big open jurisdiction. Um, I think it came from a couple of things. I, you know, it's not directly related, but it certainly entered into it at some point was a few years ago, the Rules Committee made a recommendation that those circuit court appeals be heard by a panel of three judges rather than one particular judge. And the Rules Committee did a pretty extensive report, did a lot of research, did, a, you know, figured out how many cases there were, all that sort of thing, what each circuit was doing with regard to that, filed that as a rule change. And actually, uh, 
Robert Luck, who was then on the Rules Committee, argued the case at the Supreme Court uh, on the Rules Committee's behalf. But then, not directly related, but sort of proceeding at the same time, there was a lot of thought to changing the jurisdiction, one of the county courts to make a lot, make them have much higher monetary amounts for what they were had jurisdiction over. Uh, and then at some point, there was some discussions about maybe moving those appeals uh, to the district courts, in part, I think, because um, people just felt like if you're going to do an appeal, it ought to be going to the district court where you have appellate judges who are used to doing appeals. And I, a long, long time ago, used to teach along with Judge Jackie Griffin. We taught appellate law to circuit court judges who would be sitting on those appeals. And it's hard for a judge to be a trial judge, you know, six months out of the year. And then for one week out of the year, hear, you know, 20 appeals. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really hard for them to do that. So I think there was just a a whole bunch of things that sort of coalesced together at just the right moment uh, with the legislature being willing to change the jurisdiction by increasing the amount, uh, addressing the whole issue about should they be in three judge panels That just kind of all fell together at just the right moment, and the legislature went ahead and changed that, and the court supported the change. Going back for just a second, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the the three-judge panel issue, which I recall being an issue. And and every time I've been involved in an appeal from county court to circuit court, it has been a three-judge panel. But I guess there were circuits in the state that were doing single appellate judge appeals. uh, panels is that was that part of the issue? Yeah, there were actually a lot were doing it that way, and some there was one circuit that had two judges, and if they tied, then they'd get a third judge. But if they both agreed, they would just the two of them would decide it. There was all kinds of variation of that, and of course, there were some circuits that didn't have uh, a lot of judges. You know, they're real small circuits that didn't have a lot of judges. One of the comments filed, I can't remember which circuit it was, that it would be really difficult for them to actually do that, to have, you know, sit a three-judge panel. There were issues that the big circuits that are spread out a little bit, if you're going to have oral argument, would you have to all get together, and how would you conference the cases and all that? So it had a lot of problems. I mean, practitioners really felt that it was sort of just unfair to have a county judge decide something, and then just one circuit judge reviewed that. And it created a problem of, which still exists, it created this problem of uh, if a circuit judge writes an opinion in one of these cases, technically all the county judges are bound by that under the general theory that applies at the district court to trial court level. But it was almost impossible to keep track of that. In fact, one of the, one of the rules that the committee did get adopted was to require the circuit courts to publish all their appellate opinions, uh, you know, put them up, put them out on their website. So mm. it was, again, it was sort of a lot of things happening at the same time that came together and um, made the legislature move the way they did. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And just as a side, I would think now in the, in the post COVID world, it seems funny that one of the concerns was that uh, judges were too geographically dispersed to have oral argument, right? Cause we, we seem to have solved that problem now. Right. <laughs> yeah. And even to conference, you know, they, you know, they didn't want to uh, 
get on the phone to conference. You know, people wanted to meet together, but you know, now they, that wouldn't have been a problem either. They could just all get on their Zoom account and conference together that way, you know, which the district courts had teleconferencing uh, process been available to them for a long, long time, but all the circuits didn't really have a good system for doing that sort of thing. So what I, my understanding is that the, the statutory change, and I think it's Florida statutes 26.012, essentially what they just did by statute was eliminate the circuit court's authority to hear uh, appeals from county courts, at least in civil or criminal cases. Yeah, they and actually I, I have to look at, I had, I think it was 92408 that they eliminated. That was the one on all the stuff related to criminal. They just took that up. They just deleted that statute or whatever you do when you get rid of a statute. Yeah, that's Uh, the one. Yeah. And so so that basically accomplished it because I just took that jurisdiction and switched it and gave it to the district courts. Um, So um, worked out pretty well. And then there are a few things that do survive. The two biggest that survive there's specifically in uh, Chapter 26, there's a provision that says um, that appeals of uh, code enforcement boards go to the circuit court. It's a specific statute that was not repealed, mm-hmm. uh, so it's still there. The other thing that's still going to be there, and we, the Rules Committee have been discussing it, we're not sure how this is going to work and uh, if it'll create confusion or whatever, but original proceedings will still go. Uh, from the county court to the circuit court. So if people are filing cert petitions or mandamus or prohibition, they won't be going to the district court on those. They'll be going still to the um, circuit court. And, you know, it's interesting because they have, there's a rule of civil procedure 1.630 that covers original proceedings in the trial court. And there's been, you know, when Judge Griffin and I used to teach that class, we used to say, hey, there's this rule and you're used to applying it all the time when you're sitting as a circuit judge, but if you're getting one of those as a petition for cert from the county court, you actually have to look at rule 9.100. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a real, um, that was one of those things that popped up. And I, so now I think there's, is going to be some confusion about where those, I mean, I think they're going to go there. I don't think there's any question they're going to go there, but there'll be a little confusion at first about, are we really supposed to be getting these, you know, that sort of thing. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now Add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, check out Episode 9 of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious and an in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. Next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, 
giving you one less thing to worry about. I thought it was interesting when I first heard about this. I, I was wondering, you know, how can this happen without a change in the Constitution? But but the answer is actually pretty easy. The Constitution gives, uh, in Article 5, Section 4B1, gives District Court of Appeals jurisdiction to hear appeals uh, from final judgments of, or orders of trial courts, not directly reviewable to the Supreme Court or Circuit Court. So, uh, they they always had the authority. It was just sort of taken away by statutes, which have now been repealed. Right. And it's uh, I've always thought that, too. You know, I used to say, you know, as appellate attorneys are want to do, it said I used to say jurisdiction is determined by the Constitution. But really, when you really sort of then that's true. But when you really get into it, uh, the legislature has a lot of authority to change the jurisdiction as they did here. Yeah. As you said, as you said to start off, though, it just rarely happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's what makes it so interesting, because it is, uh, you know, kind of unprecedented in, in my lifetime anyway. So that's the mechanics of it, which or that's actually not the mechanics. Of it. That's the big right. picture. Right. Uh, but it takes more than that, because obviously there have to be some rule changes that have to be approved by the Florida Supreme Court in order to make this happen. And. I guess have to happen fairly quickly because the clock is running. But what is what types of changes are in the works at the uh, at the rules level? Well, the uh, appellate court rules committee took it up and formed. Uh, well, they just have existing committees. One deals with civil. One deals with criminal. It was assigned to civil um, only because they thought the biggest changes would happen in civil. Um, so civil looked at it, and the real thing that the subcommittee was really looking at was you're not going to write a rule to change jurisdiction. That's not their prerogative, except in you know non-final appeals to the district court. Um, so what you were really trying to do, and what we did do, is you literally we looked at virtually every rule of the appellate rules and tried to see if there was any language in there that would be inconsistent with the appeals going from the county court to the district court of appeal now. So we review, you know, we, we literally, we divided it up into small groups and certain people were assigned certain rules. You had to, you know, there was like four people in these little subgroups and we looked at our set of rules and tried to find anything that we thought would be confusing those rules that need to be changed. And there actually were quite a few changes. Most of them are just wording, for example, in, uh, Criminal appeals, you know, there was a reference that you had to serve the state attorney because the state attorney was acting like the attorney general in those kinds of cases. The attorney general didn't handle those appeals from county to circuit court. Um, so we had to take out references like that. There were some uh, confusion about um, references saying the circuit court clerk would do certain things uh, or the clerk or the lower tribunal clerk would do certain things. We we went through those and we ultimately decided that we're not going to recommend a change on that um, because just the way the rules work, um, you know, clerks are elected count by county, but they also, uh, unlike some states, they serve as the clerk for the county court, but they also serve as clerk for the circuit court. So we felt that that reference would work either way. We didn't have to, especially on the short time frame, we didn't have to get into that and change it. Um, but 
that's something the rules committee is going to look at uh, as a separate thing later to make sure we're using the, that the reference is consistent throughout the rules. We actually identified a couple of places where we use a different term. Shouldn't be doing that. So we're going to go back and look at that when we have a little bit more time. And that, you know, that's generally about it. You know, we civil put together the changes There weren't, as I said, there weren't a whole lot of big changes. We, any of them involving criminal, we floated them by the criminal uh, subcommittee of the pellet rules. Um, and they agreed with what we'd recommended. And that's going to come up. Um, the full com- committee is going to take that up. I think it's September 2nd, maybe September 3rd. I know it's right. It's in that week. They're going to take that up, uh, going to hold a Zoom meeting, uh, discuss all the changes and vote on that. And then the petition will be filed very shortly after that. Um, so we're going to go from there. And actually, uh, we're looking at the rule of judicial administration. As I think as we read it, it's actually because this is a fast track because of a legislative change. I'm not actually sure, and I'd have to go back and look. I'm not sure that's going to actually go to the full committee or it'll just go to the executive committee of the appellate practice section because the fast track procedure under the 2.140 specifies generally that you send those to your executive committee so that they can act quickly and you don't have to get the whole group involved. Mm, mm, Yeah, that makes sense because there's there's not a lot of time really. (laughs) Yeah. Well, then the subcommittee was unanimous in the changes. So I don't think, I think it's going to be, you know, I mean, because the changes that we recommended made, they just had to be made because certain things just didn't make sense the way they were worded if there wasn't going to be an appeal in circuit court. Now, we did have some issues that we did discuss. One is, one of the biggest one is there's a part of the statute says that they have jurisdiction, they have discretionary jurisdiction over a question certified as a question of great public importance um, or that involves um uh, the administration of justice. Um, so at first we thought we were going to, we didn't need to have that rule anymore about you could seek review of a certified question, but we realized we had to keep it because you still have this like appeals from code enforcement boards. You could get it in that case. We didn't think you need it because if every order was going to be a final order, you could appeal it. Why would you need a certified question? But since there are those remainders and there may be more because some of those are often other statutes. You'd be amazed how there's this loose language in some statute that purports to give jurisdiction. And so there may be others that we just aren't aware of yet, but may find when people start appealing. But so we talked about changing that. We decided not to. The question, it turns out the question of, uh, it's a certified question of great public importance or involves the administration of justice. It turns out that language has been in the statute for a long time. And some time ago, uh, the committee took that up, and there's some actually case law on that that says the uh, great public importance sort of subsumes the uh, administrative justice, so you don't need to say them both. If you just say great public importance, that covers both of them. There's actually some somebody did research on it. There's a committee note from one year from the committee that says exactly that, and as I said, one of the judges who was familiar with it pointed out that there's some case law that says that as well. So we, we felt like we didn't need to change those, but they're going to be there. But I think that area about the certified question is going to be a little confusing because that's discretionary. So what will happen if somebody in a county court case thinks that this is a real important case and really ought to be decided by the district court, you know, 
right away. So they certify a question. Um, technique to this certified question is discretionary, but if it's if it's added into a final order, the final order is appealable by itself. I think we're just, and we decided we couldn't fix that by rule. We're just going to have to sort of wait and see what happens. <laughs> and if it turns out to be confusing, then we'll try to come back and fix the rule. But and it may turn out to not be confusing at all. Uh, we just didn't know. Yeah, no, that's interesting, and and I'm sure, like you said, there's there's stuff hiding out there in different statutes, and you know, you never really know, I guess, sometimes what the full extent is until it's tested by time a little bit. Yeah, I can give an example that's going to be coming up is there's recommendations coming up that the court has has gotten but is not published for comment yet involving Marcy's law, and um, there's a. Pre- there's a provision in there that says that the victim has the right to participate in post-conviction proceedings. And so the question is what that's going to be. So the rule appellate rules committee proposed a rule about what they thought that should be. Um, and but part of that is there's going to be a provision in there that says if the victim makes a statement in the trial court, that should go on the record on appeal that goes up to the, to the appellate court. But it's going to be in the criminal section on the, on the involving post-conviction and criminal cases. It's not going to be in the record rule because people just felt if it would, you know, if it was in the record rule, there'd be some confusion about it. They wanted to put it in the Marcy's law rule. So um, clerks, I've already had discussion with the clerks of court. That's a change they're going to have to make to their process um, because sometimes you, you can't necessarily get it under where you think it ought to be. It makes sometimes actually makes more sense to put it someplace else. You know, so I, you had said before that the the courts are generally receptive to this change, and of course that always makes things easier. But I'm curious: has there been thought given to, or any studies done on what effect this may have on the workload of the district courts of appeal? Yeah, they. Um, you know, when they that. What happened when the Rules Committee proposed the three-judge panel, um, the court ultimately decided not to adopt it at that point, but they, but they wrote an opinion in saying they were going to create a committee, a court committee, to look at it. And so there was a court committee appointed who spent, uh, I think, maybe six months or longer looking at it. And one of the things that they looked at was workload. Uh, and so they actually were able to gather stats over about a six or seven year period, I think it was. That report's available. It's out on the Supreme Court's website. But um, ultimately, they determined that there were, at that time, they submitted that in 2019. At that time, there were an average of about um, 1,800 cases a year, I think it is, total. Um that would go to the district courts if I if I'm reading the chart right, mm-hmm. and um, so if you, you know, say you just round it up to 2,000 and then divide it by five, that's about 400 new appeals uh, that would be potentially coming into the district courts. So there there potentially is a workload issue, but the district courts seem very willing to take these cases. You know, right now, and I haven't looked at this in a while, but I looked at it some probably a year ago. There are some courts that actually, if you follow the strict uh, rules for how many judges you're supposed to be entitled to, probably have an extra judge uh, sort of thing. But they, 
That's governed under the rules of judicial administration, too, how you certify the need for additional judges. It used to be fairly simple. It was like 250 cases per judge. The next, when you got to, you know, you divided how many cases you had by how many numbers of judges you had. And if you had more than 250 extra, you could get a certified for a new judge. And then at some point they changed that to, I think the number was 350 per judge or 200 cases decided on the merits, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ultimately they changed it and they charged the District Court of Appeal on performance and accountability to do this weighted study of, of like they've done for the trial court for years where, you know, a cert petition is a, you know, if a, a regular case is a, is a 1.0, right. you know, a cert petition might be a 0.5 and a, a non-final appeal of something might be a, you know, a 0.3. So mm-hmm. I think a workers' comp case might be a 1.2. So they do this weighted thing, and they uh, the, that that commission, uh, performance commission, every four years they do a re-weighting, uh, and then they submit a, a thing to the Supreme Court on that. And I think the rule then says you multiply, you take you take all the cases they had at the district court, you add get what their weighted number is, and then you multiply that by a hundred. How they got to that, I don't know. <laughs> and, then, and then if you have enough, you have to get to the full number, to whatever that next number would, would it be that would entitle you to a new judge. You have to get all the way to the full number. And then you ask for a judge, and then the court takes it up and considers whether they'll grant a new judge. So it's a kind of involved process. It doesn't happen. I mean, it happens every year, but getting a new DCA judge is actually pretty hard. Um, yeah. And if you remember a few years ago, they actually decertified. I know, I know for sure the third district, they decertified one judge. So when one of the judges left, they just didn't get a new judge because mm-hmm. they, they had a lower court caseload at that point. So I guess it'll be sort of a wait and see through that normal process as to whether this makes a significant difference in any districts or not. Yeah, and I think there's some feeling that, you know, even though everybody's case is important, some of these cases are not going to be as complicated uh, as the ones that are coming from the circuit courts already. Of course, that remains to be seen. You might be getting a bunch of questions of law you've never seen before. Um, That's right. Yeah. They haven't, you know, because they haven't gone to the, uh, I was thinking PIP cases, you know, PIP cases only get there now on second tier review, I think. And so they're, that'll change. They're going to be coming there on first tier review. So, you know, Judges are going to have to learn those cases, and just as an example. Then they'll have to figure out how to weight them in this process, right? Of yeah, yeah, out. that'll have to be take place too. Though that's another thing. Before that, even that happens, yeah, they'll have to go through the weighting process. And I suspect that what will happen is after they get a year of stats, uh, they'll charge the District Court of Appeal Performance and Accountability Commission to say, "Hey, we need we need weights for all these new cases," you know. Yeah, uh, probably, they probably won't wait to they'll wait till they have enough to look at, but not a long time, uh, especially if the district courts are telling the court that this is not working out as well as they thought it was. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Begging for mercy, right? Yeah, which, which they won't hesitate to do. No. Well, Tom, thanks. I think, you know, it's an interesting time um, and we will have to see how it all pans out. But I think, um, you know, to me, it seems like it's it's well thought out. It seems like a 
a, a good and advisable change. Uh, I do think it makes sense if you're going to appeal uh, cases that they should go to a, you know, a truly appellate court and judges that are used to that process. So, uh, you know, I'm in favor. I think that um, I think it's a good change. Yeah, I do too. I think it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the niche changes for who's doing those appeals too. You know, there, there were definitely people who kind of specialized in those kinds of cases, particularly the zoning enforcement uh, code enforcement board is one, you know, those are always go there. And there's people, I know appellate attorneys who do almost exclusively that, but once they get these other kinds of cases, whether there'll be a subset of appellate attorneys who specialize in those cases or whether those will flow over to appellate attorneys who are appellate attorneys now, or whether, you know, you'll just be having a lot of trial attorneys handling the appeals in those cases. That's going to, I think that's going to be an interesting thing. See how that shakes out. Mm, yeah, definitely. I hadn't thought about that, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We'll see more, you know, maybe we'll see more diversity in the, uh, what we would call the appellate bar. Or it's right. going to be good for the appellate practice section, right? We'll recruit new, we'll recruit yeah. more members yeah. <laughs> and do more CLEs. <laughs> well, Tom Hall, thanks so much for your, your time today and your analysis. I appreciate it. And, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll have you back another time, but, uh, thanks for your time. Okay. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it as always. Thanks to Tom Hall for being on the podcast again. His biography and contact information are in the show notes. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is also in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts so you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will release in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.